Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH, and we are excited that you're here. We're continuing on in our series called Behold God With Us. And if you thought that voice over sounded familiar, uh, that's, that's David Fox um, who's uh, doing that. He's not here, so you don't have to give him a round of applause. Um, <laughs> he ditched. Um, but, uh, but last week, we largely kind of set the stage for what we're talking through, this idea of behold, right? To, to see something or someone remarkable is really the working definition that we came up with. But that's not always the case in our faith. We aren't always able to just kind of sit back and just sit in awe of God. Last week, I talked about the idea of uh, of the place where I go, and if you're in, our, in a small group, uh, maybe you answer this question as well, but where do you go to just sit and behold God? You know, for me, it was tunnel view when I talked about the big old snowflakes falling down and that sort of thing. When I asked my group uh, about this, about this, the, you know, the same question, where do they go to behold God? Um, I was just talking about like, Obviously, it's nature. If that's it for me, it's got to be that for everybody else, right? No, I was wrong. Uh, we, uh, shocker, uh, we had uh, a couple ladies who were just like a holding a newborn baby is where I behold God. And I was like, all right, you win with that answer, whatever. That's fine. But that's not always the case, right? We don't always get an opportunity to sit and behold God. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a couple times in my life where I have had what you would call a crisis of faith, figuring out who it is, uh, or what it is, rather, that I believe, who it is that I believe in. And so, a couple times, I remember uh, graduating from junior high, sorry, it's not graduation, promoting from junior high, um, and uh, getting into high school and having to decide if I was more interested in being uh, liked or being respected, right? So I had to come to terms with that, that whole notion. And uh, if I wanted to be respected, I needed to cling on to those things, those beliefs uh, that I was taught as I grew up. So that was one of them. I remember uh, another one later on in life is my dad battled through cancer and, and had to ask myself the question, is God good? Is God a good God? There's another one I don't talk about as often. Um, as I graduated from high school, I was a typical, like, arrogant, type A, like, alpha male. Like, I'm going to go in and do all the things that I want to do, right? Uh, classic 18-year-old. I had so much testosterone in my veins. Like, I was ready to go. Um, and so I graduated from Atwater High School, and I immediately went to Chico State. Now, a lot of people, as I talk about the different colleges that I went to, which is like 14, not literally, but I went to a lot of colleges, I always just kind of say, yeah, I went to Chico for a year, and then, and I just kind of proceed on with my story. The Chico, Chico State's like the dark years, right? Uh, dark year, singular, nine months, really. Uh, man, I was there for a real long time. Um, so, 
So when I went to Chico State, though, um, I didn't go to Chico State for the same reason that the majority of people go to Chico State. Chico State, as soon as I told people where I was going to school, they were like, oh, party school, right? Like that's what, as soon as I said Chico State, all of you were like, oh, crisis of faith. Peter's going to get there. He's going to get into some like drunken debauchery, and then he's going to realize the error of his ways and walk away. Well, I'm happy to tell you, you're wrong every single one of you who thought that. I went to Chico State arrogant enough to believe that I was going to change a 16,000-person campus from a party school into a Christian school, right? That was me. And so I was like, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. It'll be fine. Um, and so I showed up, and, and really what they do is they, uh, they, as they're like partnering roommates together, they decide they out a questionnaire to see, okay, are these two people going to be compatible or not? Right. And I'm pretty sure they take those questionnaires, and just throw them into the air and whoever touches next to each other. Right. Like that's who they pair you with, because my roommate situation was a disaster. It was the worst thing ever. Like you couldn't imagine two people who were more polar opposites than me and my roommate, Joe. And there's no chance we'll ever hear it. We're not friends on Facebook. We're not like there is zero contact between Joe and I. So um, as I talk about him this morning, just know our stories are going to stay between me and you. OK. Um, so Joe, though, uh, he showed up and, and he started unpacking his stuff. And the first thing with his parents, the first thing that his mom unpacked were four different shot glasses and put them on his shelf. And I'm thinking to myself, time out, we're 18. How does he already have four of those things? Like, how is that a thing that that, that works? And so you looked at my shelf across the way. I've got like C.S. Lewis because I wanted to be intellectual, right? And then had like my Bible and then another Bible and then another Bible, right? And then just like pictures of my friends doing holy things. Um, and so, like, that was my side room. Joe's side room was completely opposite. And it got worse from there. Like, as the year went on, Joe began to, uh, he began to sell weed out of our room. Uh, it was one of my favorite things. Uh, I, I walked in, and, um, you know, I had my Bible laid open on my desk because I was really holy, like I have established already. Had my Bible laid open on my desk. Um, and... Uh, and so I walk in, and Joe has like five or six guys in our room. It's a dorm room, right? And so it's just like a prison cell, a little bigger than a prison cell. So they're all like crammed in there. And there's guys on my bed, and there's a guy sitting on my desk, or not on my desk, at my desk. And I look, and he is legitimately rolling a joint on top of my Bible, like over my Bible. I was just happy it wasn't like a page, like he didn't tear a page out and like, you know. Um, and so, so anyway, Joe was like, oh, sorry, my bad, uh, and, you know, got his friends out, and I remember sitting back in my Bible, and they're just being like marijuana in the crease of my Bible, and just, you know, did one of those, um, but I remember having to establish what it was that I was actually going to believe at Chico, because for the first time, I had people who were actually challenging my faith. I grew up in a town much like Hanford, where uh, you know, for the most part, you wouldn't have to look very far to find somebody who was going to call themselves a Christian or, call, or, or say, yes, I believe in God or believe the same things that you do, right? And so that was the same kind of place I grew up. When I got to Chico State, that was a much different situation, obviously, even just from my roommate. And so I started talking about things and saying things that I thought were just things that everybody assumed to be true. And I got there and it really wasn't the case. You know, I got there and uh, made some really big claims, and they said, well, why do you believe that? And rather than defending it, because I had no way to defend what it was that I believed, I simply yelled at them and ran away. <laughs> I wish that was a true, wasn't a true story. 
But I had a crisis of faith, not so much that I didn't know what it was or, or I didn't know who I believed in, but rather I had no evidence for why I believed in what I did. I had no way to back up those claims. And we're not going to take a deep dive into, uh, you know, into defending our faith or anything like that. But what I, I do want to, to make note of is that I believe that every single person, as they are deciding what it is that they believe, will at some point have a crisis of faith. Every single one of you, whether you've already had it, maybe you're going to have it someday. You've got it planned for 2020, right? I don't know. But every single one of us will have a crisis of faith. And really, I think at the root of this idea of a crisis of faith is the question is, how do I find peace in God? Or how do I find peace with God? Maybe is a better way to say it. Because if you're sitting here today, for the most part, unless you're a guest, unless you're new to things of church, which if you are, we're super pumped that you're here. But I think this question, how do I find peace in God, is one that is rooted in our belief and why it is that we should believe these things. Because I think oftentimes there's people who assume that every single person in here has it together except them. I think as we sit here, oftentimes it's very easy for us to, sit, to think things like, well, how come, if I could just be more like that person, or they seem to have a complete and total faith in God, and so if I could just be more like them, or if I could establish my faith like them, then I would be fine. I think the reality of the situation is, is all of us continually come back to this idea, is how do I find peace in God? Whether that's the exact question you're thinking of or not, I think that's the root of it, is we are, we are trying to find peace in what it is that we believe. The real question, though, is, is why are we asking this question during this season? Because I'm supposed to be up here talking about gold and frankincense and myrrh and have cute kids run out in sweaters and trip as they're getting back up onto the risers and that sort of thing. For those of you who were here last week, it was so good. But here's why. Because as we continue our trek into Christmas, we're looking backwards into the Old Testament to reveal prophecy and promises from God in order to see why his son came in the first place. So what was it that was said about Christ before he arrived so we can have context for why he arrived at all? That's really what we're aiming at with this series here in, in Behold. And, and today we're going to be looking into 2 Samuel 7. Okay, so for those of you who have your Bibles with you, you got your phones with you, pull the digi thing out, whatever it is that you have, and flip open to 2 Samuel 7. And we're going to start in verse 11. We'll get there in a sec. But this portion of Scripture is known as the Davidic Covenant. Okay? Um, so before we read any of that, I need, to, I need to quickly explain what covenants are and why we find them in Scripture. Covenants are one of the most important theological ideas in biblical theology. I know some of you are like, what? This is one of the most important ideas in biblical theology. I've never heard about any of the covenants before. It's okay. We'll explain it to you. The concept exists at really significant points in the Bible storyline and is the kind of theological glue that binds God's promises to God's fulfillment. That's really what covenants are. <clears throat> Oftentimes, we, uh, we think of God as our friend. We think of God as our teacher. We think of God as our Master, and all those things are true, but there's another facet of our relationship with God that doesn't get quite as much attention. And that facet is that God is our partner. 
God is our partner, and we're going to look at that as we dive deeper into the idea of covenants. Because in the very beginning of the Bible, we see this relationship that God creates man as a partner, and he puts that man to work to help him spread more goodness throughout the world, right? Unfortunately, we as human beings didn't live up to our end of the deal or our end of the covenant. Okay, oftentimes this first covenant is known as the covenant, the Adamic covenant, I'm not cussing, um, or uh, the Edenic covenant, Eden, right? So that is the first covenant that is established by God. <clears throat> Thankfully, the rest of the world describes, or the rest of the Bible rather, describes God's efforts to, re- to repair this broken relationship that we have. Because God sets out a covenant in Genesis that man and woman took all of one chapter to break. And so the rest of the Bible is these covenants kind of working together for God to repair a way for us to get back to him. So the first step God takes in repairing this partnership is to select really a small group of people or person and make a new covenant with them, a new agreement with them, a new partnership with those people. And in this covenant, God makes promises to them and asks them to fulfill certain commitments. So back in the Garden of Eden, the covenant that God makes with them is, hey, look, be fruitful and multiply. Also, just don't eat from this tree. That's it. And then what happens? Man, we couldn't even do that. And so Adam and Eve, sorry, Eve, then Adam, just for clarity's sake. I think we switch that oftentimes. Eve and Adam <laughs> decide it's a great idea to do the one thing they're not supposed to do, and that covenant is then broken. Okay? <clears throat> so, that's what covenants are. They want to, they want, God is going to hold up his end of the deal as long as we hold up our end of the deal. In total, there are four Old Testament covenants, okay? There's the one with Adam that I just talked about. There's one with Noah. There's one with Abraham. And there's one with King David. And the one that we're going to look at today is the one with King David, All these covenants serve the purpose of creating a new partnership into which God can eventually invite all humankind. That's the goal of the covenants, is we're going to create another pathway to partnership with God. One of the more famous ones that you guys probably are aware of is the, the, is the, the covenant that we have with Noah, where God promises to never use a flood to wipe out mankind ever again. And you are reminded of that covenant every time you see a rainbow, right? God's promise to us. Little did you know, it's a, it's a covenant from God. So, 2 Samuel now, we're going to dive into the Davidic covenant. We're picking up in chapter 7, verse 11. It says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Just, this is talking to David here. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So these words are spoken from a guy by the name of Nathan. Nathan was a prophet in the Bible who believed during the reign of King David in Israel, who lived rather during the reign of King David in Israel. And so God spoke to David through Nathan oftentimes. Nathan was a member of, of David's royal court and one of his closest advisors, one of his friends. The first mention of Nathan kind of establishes his relationship with David as a trusted advisor. And David here, he decides to build God a house. That's the context we pick up. He decides to to build a temple for God because the king is living in a beautiful cedar palace and thinks it's wrong that the Ark of the Covenant should be housed in a lowly tent. And so David is trying to figure out, how can I build something palatial for God? How can I build something that is going to house the Ark of the Covenant in such a way that when people walk up, they are going to see how incredibly beautiful this is, that there is no doubt in people's mind that this is where God lives. This is God's house. David tells Nathan about these plans. He tells him to build a house, that he's going to build a house for God, and Nathan said he should go ahead and do it because the Lord is with him. That's right before this in verses 2 and 3. Then God visits Nathan in a dream. So any of you in here who are like, you know what, uh, I think that's a great idea. And then you go home and you pray about it and you go back to your friend. And you're like, you know what? That's a terrible idea. We have context for that here in scripture. Okay. This is what happens with Nathan right here. So God visits Nathan in a vision and tells him to return to David and inform him that God doesn't need the king to build him a house. Actually, God would establish David's dynasty. God is going to take care of that through his son forever, his son Solomon. Solomon would be the one to to build God's house. Nathan relays this message to the king, and David utters a grateful and beautiful prayer to God in verses 18 to 29. So if you want to see that, you can check that out later on on your own. But what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Great question. I appreciate all of you asking that question. Because David decided he was going to build the temple for God. God comes back to him and tells him, I'm going to build a kingdom through you. This isn't about what you can do for me. It's what I'm going to do through you. And it isn't going to be about a throne that crumbles eventually. It isn't going to be about a place where people walk up and they see this beautiful, majestic thing that you have created for me with gold walls and whatever else his plans were. It's not going to be about that. God tells David, I am going to establish my kingdom through you. Now, I'm going to establish a place for me to hang out in. My kingdom, my godly kingdom, I'm going to establish through you. When your days are over, when you're dead, when your lineage, like from your lineage, I am going to establish my kingdom through you. From your family, from your line, I'm going to establish my kingdom through you. He will build a house. Someone from your lineage will build a house. For my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His promise to David was that he was going to send someone from his lineage who was going to be the savior of the world. That's his promise to David here. That the savior of the world is going to come from the line of David. So now let's look at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Ah, Christmas. Here we go. 
And this, what we're looking at, is the lineage of Jesus that we have. And this is the portion of the book of the Bible that, that we all skip over, right? It's like a lineage, and you're like, okay, that's a whole bunch of names. I don't know. Next one. This is why this is important. This is why lineages are important. Because if you peek at verse 1, Matthew 1, 1, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of who? David. The son of David. The son of Abraham. And then you go to verse 6, and verse 6 says, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You take a look back, and all of a sudden there is a lineage from David all the way to the birth of Christ. So why is that lineage important? It's because it traces the Davidic covenant to completion in Christ. It traces a promise that God made a real long time ago to fruition with Christ. God made that promise to David actually almost 500 years before Jesus is born in a manger. 500 years! Now for a lot of us, we're like, okay, 500 years, cool, 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 cool. But that's an incredibly long time. That's almost twice as long as America has been around. Twice as long. Like, can you imagine if a promise that George Washington made, George Washington isn't Jesus, just to be clear, a promise that George Washington made in 1776 came to fruition, not today, but in another 250 years? That would be crazy. Like, our minds would be completely and totally blown by that. Like, like just even the idea that this promise came to fruition should completely and totally blow our minds. Because 500 years before this is when these words are spoken. Like, the Jews at this point may have thrown their hands up the entire thing. Right? Thought that the promise God made to David was a forgotten about thing. But what we're going to learn today is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. As a dad, I do my best to to not say things that aren't, I'm not going to hold up my end of the deal. Anybody ever, excuse me, any parents ever do this where like you mention a thing and all of a sudden you have signed a blood oath with your child to do it the next day, right? Like a kid comes up to you and they're like, Hey, Dad, what do you want to do? It's like, I don't know. Maybe we could go to the zoo at some point in time. And then it's like 5 a.m. and they're shaking you. And they're like, Dad, remember how you said we were going to go to the zoo today? Like, what are you talking about, bro? Right? Like, as a dad, I try not to say those things because my kids have a much better memory than I do. Like, I could have said something a year ago, right? Like, a year ago. and would have said, like, hey, on December 8th at 2 p.m., we are going, and they would have, like, it, like, they will come and talk to me this afternoon. This afternoon, they'll be like, hey, Dad, remember last year when you said we were going to go do that thing at 2 p.m.? Like, are you kidding me right now? But God remembers all of those things. And anything that God says, a promise that God says is a promise that is going to be kept. God doesn't say things flippantly. He says things very, very intentionally. God is obviously a much better dad than I am. And he keeps every single one of his promises. And the single most important one that he kept was sending his son to die on the cross for every single one of us. It's actually a promise that he made amid creation. 
Because again, back in Genesis, God outlines the promises that he's going to give to Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, there was punishment as they broke that covenant. He gave women labor pains, and man would have to work and toil outside the garden for his entire existence. That's what sin brought into the world. That's what that broken covenant brought into the world was consequences. But what can be overlooked in this entire happening is is God speaking to Satan and saying to Satan, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. All the way back in the creation narrative. That's what God tells Satan, that the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman, not the offspring of the man. Interesting? Because as we have Jesus being born, how was Christ conceived? From a virgin, the offspring of woman, not of man. See, God's incredibly intentional with his promises. Even in the midst of creation, even all the way back, In Genesis, the very beginning of time, the very first sin, that God says, hey, look, I've got a plan that I've already established. You think you have won, but this is temporary. Because what's going to happen is the offspring of woman, not of man, is going to conceive a child. And that child is going to crush your head forever. See, God, uh, God keeps his promises. And as he kept his promise, Jesus didn't just stay in the manger. Jesus went to the cross, so the original sin that Adam and Eve, that original covenant that was broken, was corrected. Christ repaved a way for us back to God. Not only because God keeps his promises, but God loves us enough to do so in the first place. It's parts like this in the Bible that oftentimes we forget when we're in the midst. We forget about those things when we're in the midst of a crisis of faith or a faith struggle. To bring it full circle. Because if you found yourself in that place, much like the place I was questioning, much like my crisis of faith from junior high to high school, from high school to college, when my dad was battling cancer, much like those crises of faith, oftentimes I forget something very, very, very important. One of the promises that God made to us is that God is for you. God is for us, and he tells us that in Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. It says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also was interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep 
to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, hear this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God keeps his promises. We have a God who is for you. And it's evidenced in the fact that even immediately after this sin took place in the garden, even as he made covenants with Abraham that he was going to establish him as a great nation, and from Abraham came David's line, and from David came the new covenant. This new covenant. You know how when we take communion, there's that word, those words, it's a new covenant that Christ established? You know what that new covenant was? Hey, believe in Christ and you can make it to heaven. You know what our end of the deal is? It's to say yes to God. That's our end of the deal. That's our end of the covenant. Like, as you look at it, I feel like we probably got the, the, like the, 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 the good end of the deal. God definitely got the short end of the stick in this whole thing. You look at it, if you're across a bargaining table and someone's like, all right, look, I'm going to send my son to die for you, and you just have to say yes to me. Uh, okay. But that is a new covenant that Christ, cre- that, that Christ established, that God created for us. To be able to say yes to God. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And so as you are in a place, your faith crisis, as you are thinking and wondering whether or not God is good, why would God put me through the things that I have had to endure? Why financially and I'm in, am I in such a place where it just seems like thing after thing after thing is just piling up? Why is my marriage just completely and totally off the rails right now? Why do my kids not currently believe in Christ? How come they're not walking with God? How come my job is complete and total wreck and I have to show up every single day and in that place where I show up, I'm completely and totally drained of any life or any energy. God, why am I in that place? As you are walking through those crises of faith and wondering whether or not God is good, remember, God is for you and God keeps his promises. It's an incredibly difficult thing to recognize as you're in the midst of those faith crises, though. It's an incredibly different, th- difficult thing for us to be able to recognize in those things. Can you imagine, though, what it would look like if we recognized that God was good? If we recognized that God was indeed for us, that his promise to us was indeed that we are more than conquerors through Christ? That God was for us? How our lives would be different because we recognize that love for us? That we wouldn't get caught up in the things that seem to bog us down. Even the things, you know, there's so many people who walk through faith crises simply because they, they allow the world in. They allow the chatter in. They participate in the things of the world and all of a sudden it's a faith crisis when really it's a personal problem that you haven't gotten past. You're blaming your choices on a sovereign God. But church, if we simply recognize that God was a good God who indeed kept 
his promises, that we wouldn't get caught up in those things. That we wouldn't get caught up in those things that we, you know, get caught up in the opinions of man rather than the opinions of God. How we get caught up in the, the gossip about petty things that ultimately don't matter. How we make quick assumptions about those we don't know simply because we love to toil in the mess and in the state of the world rather than simply realizing that if we do all things in recognition of a massive and loving God who keeps his promises, then we would be more concerned about those who don't yet know God than we would be about the pettiness that we surround ourselves on a regular basis. See, even as we recognize that God drew the short end of the stick regarding that new covenant that he created, we're still the ones who don't follow up on our end of the deal. We're still the ones who are consistently not saying yes to Christ. We're still the ones who wake up over and over and over again. And as we are supposed to choose to follow him every single day, we choose to follow the way that seems best to us. Because we're more concerned with us and what matters to us rather than recognize that God is for us and there are people in the world who don't yet know him. People that God is already for. And as God is already for those people, we simply need to take the opportunity to say, hey, do you know who God is? Do you have a faith? Tell me about your faith. And let me tell you what what my faith has done. Let me tell you what my God has done because of the faith that I have. And simply sharing those things. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. So I don't know where, you at, where you're at in, in faith or anything like that, but my challenge to you today is for, it, it, my challenge for you today is, you know, as you're eating lunch or after you wake up from post-church nap or whatever your ritual is after you leave uh, this place, is to ask yourself, That in the midst of your faith, Christ, in the midst of your life, in the midst of hardship, think back to a time of difficulty. Maybe right now, like, everything is rainbows and unicorns for you. Great, congratulations. So it may be a little bit more difficult for you. But think back to a time in your life when you had a crisis of faith. And then I want you to think about how God was present in that faith how God was present there, how his blessings actually showed up. Now that you're on this side of that crisis, looking backwards, saying, oh, wait, God was indeed present there. Oh, that's how God used that for his glory. Oh, that's how God used that to bring other people to Christ. And can I just tell you, we have so many people, and I'll end with this, we have so many people who deal with death and sickness and injury and illness whose prayers aren't, God, heal me, but whose prayers are simply, God, be glorified in the midst of this. Those are people who understand that God keeps his promises, that God is for us. Regardless of our present circumstances, God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. Let's pray, church. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for you just indeed being for us. And that, God, you indeed keep your promises, that that you've kept numerous promises to us, that even when we messed up, even when we failed to, to, to carry our end of the deal, that you said, okay, well, you didn't do that. Let's try this. Let's try this. 
Let's try this. And ultimately, all of those things fell short. All of them fell short. You knew that they were going to fall short until you established a new covenant with the blood of your son. Where you said, look, I'm sending my son to earth as a baby born in a manger. And there's not going to be a lot of fanfare. We'll bring some shepherds over, some wise men. But outside of that, I'm sending my son. And that whoever would believe in him and believe that, that he went to the cross on our behalf would not die but would have eternal life. God, you made that, that promise to us. Even as we tore through the book of John, you made that promise to us, a new covenant you created for us to be able to get to you. And so this idea of crisis of faith, Father, if there are people in here who are just dealing and struggling, I don't understand how I can find peace in God. My answer to finding peace in God is recognizing that you're indeed a good God who is for us. And so to be, ele to be God, elevate our sight lines to see above our present circumstances so we can recognize that you're for me I know you're for me, God. I don't see it right now, but I have faith that you're for me. God, I pray that would just be the cry of our hearts, that you are for us. God, I know that you're for me. I know that you're for me. That doesn't always look, God, I know it doesn't look like, like riches and, and health and wealth and all the things. And it simply means that you're being glorified in my life. And I want to do whatever it takes to make that so. And so, Father, if there are people in here who don't yet know you, who haven't yet said yes to you and established that personal covenant with you, God, if they're in here, I would just say the same way we pray every single weekend. Just pray along. You can do it silently. We pray the ABCs. Firstly, I, God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That ever since that covenant was broken, all the way back in the book of Genesis, that we've needed some way to get to you. And I admit, though, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And, and I believe, I be, I believe that you sent your Son to establish a new covenant, an unbroken one that would repave the way for me to be able to get back to you. I believe you sent your Son for us to do that. And see, I choose to follow you every single day. I choose that even in the midst of my crisis of faith, I choose it even in the midst of hardship. I choose it even in the midst of blessing. That I would follow you every single day of my life. Because I know that you're for me. And I know that you keep your promises for me. So we're thankful for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.